From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. If you'd like to be part of the program, Father Wade, gallivanting across the country, is ready to take your phone calls. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn dot com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Tuesday, uh, coming to us from the breadbasket of America. They used to call Kansas the breadbasket of America, but the number one agricultural state in the United States is California, and that's where you are. That's right, Jack. I'm in the Diocese of San Jose preaching a mission this week at the parishes of St. Nicholas and St. William. St. Nicholas is holding the morning session, and St. William is holding the evening session or hosting the evening session. It's a, a dual parish family here, and it's been going great so far this week. And I was excited because this morning uh, in the Church of St. Nicholas, I was able to celebrate Mass in his honor on this, his feast day of December 6th. Yeah, we've kind of so got like a, a sort of a little mini triduum here in the middle yeah, of this week. That's right. We got today, uh, St. Nicholas, December 6th. Tomorrow is St. Ambrose, the great doctor of the church and confessor of St. Augustine on December 7th. And of course, the Immaculate Conception. Uh, on December 8th, and so it is a it is a, a saint-packed week, we could say, during this second week of Advent, and a shout-out to Father John Poncini, the pastor here at Saints Nicholas and William Parish, and uh, also his associates, Father Robain and Father Michael, so a shout-out to them and all who have been coming to the parish mission. You know, last week I was at St. Joseph's Parish in Modesto, and uh, it was great being there for the whole entire week, saw family and friends who came to the parish mission as well, and then I'll be getting back over there after this mission this week in Los Altos, just outside of San Jose, in the Diocese of San Jose, and uh, having some more days there with family, so I'm looking forward to that. But St. Nicholas today we celebrate, Jack, and you know, the absence of the hard facts of history is not necessarily an obstacle to the popularity of the saints, uh, nor nor to a particular saint's life, as devotion to St. Nicholas shows us so clearly over the centuries, because there's such strong traditions attached to his life. For example, both the Eastern and Western churches, the Latin Rite and the 23 Eastern Rites, honor him, and it is claimed, in fact, that after blessed, the Blessed Virgin Mary, he is the saint most pictured 
by Christian artists, even possibly more than St. Joseph. That's pretty incredible if that's true. Uh, And yet, historically, we can pinpoint only the fact that Nicholas was the 4th century bishop of Myra, a city in Lycia, a province of Asia Minor. As with many of the early century saints, uh, we are able to capture the relationship which Nicholas had with God through the admiration which Christians have had for him. His love for God, his desire to be with God, is precisely what has inspired uh, his devotees, the devotees of St. Nicholas, an admiration expressed in the colorful stories which have been told and retold throughout the centuries about his life. And perhaps the the best-known story about St. Nicholas concerns his charity toward a poor man who was unable to provide dowries for his three daughters of marriageable age. And rather than see them forced into prostitution, Nicholas secretly tossed a bag of gold through the poor man's window on three separate occasions, one bag for each daughter, thus enabling the daughters to be married and the father of of these girls to uh, provide their dowries. So over the centuries, this particular legend evolved into the custom of gift-giving on the saint's feast day. Uh, In the English-speaking country, St. Nicholas became, by a twist of the tongue, Santa Claus, Santa Niklaus, Santa Claus, uh, further expanding the example of generosity portrayed by this holy bishop of the early church. And I read that it's the three Scandinavian countries way up north there uh, that especially honor him on this day uh, by putting shoes outside the front doors, uh, the shoes of children, and the the shoes are filled with goodies, whether candies or small gifts or, or whatever else. So uh, that's uh, how those particular countries celebrate his feast day today, not to compete with December 25th itself or the Epiphany and its gift-giving day in those same countries, but he has a strong... Uh, uh, devo- there's a strong devotion to St. Nicholas in, in those Scandinavian countries. And then tomorrow we have St. Ambrose, Bishop and Doctor of the Church for December 7th. You know, Ambrose was born of a Roman family around the year 340. He studied at Rome and served in the imperial government. Having begun his career as a lawyer and Roman administrator, Ambrose was eventually elected Bishop of Milan in 374 by popular acclaim of the people and ordained on December 7th, his feast day. He devotedly carried out his duties and especially distinguished himself by his service to the poor and as an effective pastor and teacher of the faithful. In short, Ambrose won the hearts of his people with his direct yet compassionate pastoral style, drawing them away from Arian heretical influence and to the one true faith. And Arianism maintained, of course, that the Son of God was created by the Father and therefore was neither co-eternal with the Father nor consubstantial with the Father. Uh, A great defender of the Church as the Bride of Christ, St. Ambrose strenuously guarded the laws of the Church and defended Orthodox teaching by his writings and actions against the Arians. Uh, In fact, Ambrose skillfully deflected attempts by the Arian Empress Justina to take over two of his churches. He told her, quote, If you demand my person, I am ready to submit. Carry me to prison or to death. I will not resist you, but I will never betray the Church of Christ. End quote. St. Ambrose died on Holy Saturday, how about that, the day before Easter Sunday, in 397. He is counted among the West's four greatest doctors of the Church, and, you know, we have the four Western and the four Eastern doctors of the Church, the great fathers of the West, Jack, as we know, are St. Ambrose, who just covered his life briefly here, and St. Augustine, his great confessee, St. Jerome, and St. Gregory the Great. And then the great fathers of the East, of course, are St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory Nazianzen, 
St. John Chrysostom, and St. Athanasius, the fearless one, he was called. So there we have the, the eight great doctors of the church of both East and West, four and four. And then, of course, we have the celebration solemnity, in fact, the highest level of celebration of the Immaculate Conception. This week on the, on the 8th of December, we celebrate the perfect sinlessness of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, her Immaculate Conception was the singular privilege uh, we could say that she received to prepare her to be the mother of the Redeemer, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God. And whereas Adam and Eve were created in the state of original justice, Mary was conceived in the state of original justice. Uh, and while Adam and Eve, uh, created in the state of original justice, could have sinned and did, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, conceived in the state of original justice, could have sinned but never did. This is precisely what makes her the greatest of the Christian uh, disciples. The Immaculate Conception is precisely about Mary being conceived in St. Anne's womb so as to prepare her to carry the Savior of the world in her womb. And this is why Holy Mother Church, Jack, I believe, places the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe just four days after the Great Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception on December 12th and the optional memorial of St. Juan Diego on December 9th, because the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe is the only approved apparition of the Blessed Virgin where she is depicted with child in her womb. And of course, the Immaculate Conception celebrated on December 8th, just a few days before December 12th, the, the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, is about, again, Mary being conceived in Anne's womb, her mother's womb, which prepared her for her divine office as the Theotokos. And uh, Mary is the perfect Christian disciple, right? Uh, she is the perfect model of obedience of faith, as we are called to in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Numbers 148 and 149, and 490 through 493. Um, a brief re reflection on the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin, adapted from Living Liturgy and uh, Immaculate Conception for this feast day, this great solemnity. It says, quote, as Mary was chosen... So in Christ, we are chosen. Mary is the model of holiness who calls us to be who we are really meant to be, fully human and innocent before God. Mary's innocence and full humanity and holiness were God's special favor to her, to be sure. This solemnity reminds us that God's desire for each of us is to have the same innocence and holiness. When we are so holy, we too bear the Son within us. She was with the Twelve in the upper room at the Pentecost of the church. Pentecost, we celebrate every year on Pentecost Sunday, the so-called birthday of the church. She was with her divine Son, the God-man Jesus Christ incarnate, at his first public miracle at Cana. The Blessed Virgin Mary we honor on December 8th, her Immaculate Conception. Pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's one 833 288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985.
or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Got a great book in EWTN's religious catalog from one of my favorite people on planet Earth, The Unsolvable Problem, Little Convent in the Big City by Mother Claire Mathias. Mother Claire is on a mission to introduce religious life to Catholic kids who may have never, ever seen a sister. And to do so with humor, verve, and imaginative storytelling, the unsolvable problem introduces kids to Sister Mary Andy and her lovable convent sisters who encounter a big dilemma as they plan a patriotic picnic for the poor. Along the way, kids will learn about the convent life, little prayers to Jesus, why to obey the convent bells, and what to do when they encounter life's problems, big and small. Mother's story is based on an amazing true story that happened in New York City just before the 4th of July. It's recommended for ages 4 through 12, and it's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Free standard shipping of online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. And, um, you know, it's no mistake, I don't think, it's no coincidence, I guess what I should say, Father, that these great feasts of this week fall during the Advent season. Yeah, you know, it's a great way to kick off the liturgical year. A couple weeks back, Jack, our our, uh, springboard topic was about not only the first Sunday of Advent forthcoming that Sunday, but also it kicks off the entire new liturgical year. It's our New Year's Day, the first Sunday of Advent, which uh, this year was on November 27th. And, uh, you know, we see the joy and the celebration of Holy Mother Church and her liturgical calendar right when she kicks off the new year with Advent. You know, we have these great saints of of St. Nicholas, St. Ambrose, there's the St. Lucy Day celebration on December 13th, there's Juan Diego on the 9th of December, there's Our Lady of Guadalupe, again, the patroness of the Americas on December 12th. Uh, Just some great, great feast days here, all lined up, and then, of course, right after Christmas, we have some of the greatest martyrs. We have the Holy Innocents, for example, you know, the Massacre of the Innocents. Uh, You know, they they spoke for, for, for Christ in their death. They, they, they died for him, uh, as, as instructed by the army of Herod to carry out by Herod himself, because he was threatened by his, in his kingship, thinking that, that this Christ child would, would grow up to take over his, his kingdom. Uh, you know, we even have the martyrs, John the, John the Evangelist, who is exiled to Patmos, the island of Patmos. So just these great feast days that show us the joy and the committed reality of being a Christian, and also to the point of death, to the point of martyrdom, you know, of course, with the saints, red martyrdom. But even in our own daily lives, you know, the, the white martyrdom of, of sharing in the cross, you know, suffering. Uh, tribulations, uh, however those things might come, whether it be an illness, whether it be something happens at work that you didn't expect in the negative, uh, you know, whatever it is. So we, we, we look to the saints to help sustain us, not only in the times of joy, but also in the times of when we're going through our rough bouts with different things, we can look to the saints as well. So it's just a, a wonderful time of the year for me personally. I, I just love Advent. I always have. And uh, I love these saints that really kick it off within the first two to two and a half weeks. 
Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Unfettered access to a Father of Mercy for a simple free phone call, 833-288-3986. We've got an email here, Father, and this is a question that we will answer several times between now and Christmas, but it's a good question. What do I say to people who say that Christmas is a pagan day and Christians have co-opted Mithra, Saturnalia, or something like that for its own purposes? Well, if you believe in divine revelation and what the sacred authors have placed before us and that the second triune person of the Godhead, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, became incarnate, uh, then you can easily rebuff those arguments. Uh, we believe our God is a revealed God, huh? A, a babe in a manger in Bethlehem who had a nine-month gestation. Uh, and we believe that God's Word is inspired. It's divine revelation. It reveals because He precisely is a revealed God, right? Um, he, he took on our human nature, Fulton Sheen says. He made us in His image and likeness so that one day He could take on our image and likeness and come to save and redeem us, redeem and save us. And uh, this is a, a great reality of, of the Christian, of believing in divine revelation. And of course, we Catholics believe also in the sacred tradition of the Church, both written, like sacred tradition, uh, like, like sacred scripture, and the orally handed down, as well as the magisterium of the Church, the teaching office of the Church, um, you know, which is rooted in the apostolic college with Peter as its head. You know, I, I, I'm a big promoter of the three prayers, the three daily prayers. In fact, I've included them in the, in the prayer appendices of my three books, Overcoming the Evil Within, The Four Last Things, and also now Catholic Essentials, the latest one. Uh, I've included the three prayers of the act of faith, the act of hope, and the act of charity. These are the three theological virtues, right? Well, how does the act of faith go? You know, uh, oh my God, I firmly believe that thou art one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I believe uh, all that you have revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the establishment of his, of his church, because you are a God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. You are a God who can neither deceive nor be deceived. And we know that, that God came uh, into our earthly realm uh, in a historical age of 2,000 years ago and took on a fully human nature, just like ours in every way but sin. You know, so, so for those who believe, uh, no, no rebuttal is, is needed uh, or, or, is, or is easily rebutted uh, to those claims. And for those who don't believe, really, no no explanation will suffice, right, as the old maxim goes. So, so uh, we, you want, this is the importance of, of Lexio Divina. This is part of the importance of daily spiritual reading of sacred scripture. You know, even if it just be a chapter a day, you know, uh, Jack, you're well familiar with my 14 uh, uh, steps to help foster the spiritual life in a I person's steal, life. I steal them often. Yes, and one of them is daily Lexio Divina, divine reading. Uh, to, even if it's just a, a, a chapter a day, a half a chapter a day, followed with some meditation time, you know. A little bit more here on the Immaculate Conception, too. You know, in 1854, Pope Pius IX solemnly proclaimed the following, quote, The most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instant of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free 
from all stain of original sin. Thus, December 8th officially became a feast of the Universal Church and was named uh, to the highest category of solemnity to distinguish its honor and importance. Now, notice, if, if we celebrate Jack December 8th as the Immaculate Conception of Mary being conceived in St. Anne's womb, what is exactly nine months before on the calendar? September 8th, which is the Church's calendar celebration of the Nativity of Mary, huh? So Mary, fully human, not an ounce of divinity in her, uh-uh, no way, had a, had a nine-month gestation. Um, our Lord, who is divine, what he was, he, re- he remained God, what he was not, he assumed human nature. He also had a human nature, just like ours in every way but sin. So we celebrate the, 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 the Feast of the Incarnation, also called the Feast of the Annunciation, on March 25th of every year honoring Christ being conceived in Mary's womb by the mysterious overshadowing of the Holy Spirit over her. And then nine months later to the day on the secular calendar, we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. So remember, there's always a method to the madness of the church's liturgical calendar. I can't stress this enough. So we see this from Mary's Nativity, September 8th, uh, excuse me, December 8th, her Immaculate Conception, to September 8th, and then we see it also again with Christ from March 25th, the Annunciation, or the Sacred Incarnation, to December 25th, the Great uh, Solemnity of Christmas. So December 8th officially became a feast of the Universal Church and was named to the highest category, as I said, of a solemnity to distinguish its honor and importance. The celebration of the conception of Mary in her mother's womb, St. Anne, had its origins in the 7th century, but received its present name in the 11th century. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which teaches that Mary was preserved from all stain of original sin when she was conceived, developed over time, true enough, but the dogma itself is rooted in the words of the Archangel Gabriel at the time of the Annunciation. Speaking on God's behalf, Gabriel calls Mary, quote, full of grace, full of grace, Luke chapter 1, verse 28. So correctly understood, then, Mary's exceptional holiness reveals the unparalleled goodness of God. And the Blessed Virgin Mary, under the title of the Immaculate Conception, is the patroness of the United States. Also under the Immaculate Conception title, she's the patroness of Brazil, and also of Colombia, among many other places, but especially those three. And I mention those three because they're in the Americas. So just a wonderful, wonderful celebration, and uh, well worth uh, preparing ourselves for. You know, I like to recommend Jack Confession once during Advent itself and one more time during the great nine-day novena countdown, the 17th through the 23rd, uh, actually the 25th if you count it as nine days, but up to the 23rd when we have the O antiphons and uh, the seven O antiphons. Try to go one more time just before Christmas and then that confession, you know, you, you've prepared yourself well for not only Christmas, but it's octave, right? Uh, we celebrate octaves in the Catholic Church, and the two big octaves are the Christmas octave, December 25th through January 1st, the secular New Year's Day, uh, the great solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, right? And uh, you prepare yourself not only for Christmas's celebration, but you prepare yourself for the, the Christmas octave. And of course, the other big octave is, um, is the Easter octave with Easter Sunday itself, followed by Divine Mercy Sunday eight days later. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we're going to talk to Fred in Boston, Massachusetts, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls on this Tuesday edition of EWTN's Open Line. 833 833- 
EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. I want to call from Father Wade's native Portugal today. That would be wonderful. If somebody would Great. give us a call from Portugal, uh, that number is one 275 And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 275 And then, of course, you can always send us an email if you would rather communicate that way. Send the email to openline at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, <clears throat> at EWTN.com. We're talking faith, family, and fellowship on EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with our very favorite Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. So pick up the phone and grab one of these open lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. Three lines open at 833-288-3986. To the phones we go as advertised. First up today is Fred in Boston, Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Fred, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Jack, uh, Father uh, Wade, thank you for the work you do this the show is awesome. Um, it's really a gift. Um, I've got a friend that basically he's come back into the faith, and you know he he's doing his thing. And we were talking the other day. I was over to his house the other day, and we started talking about purgatory. And he doesn't seem to believe in the. Is it a dogma or a doctrine? Purgatory. It's it's both. You could say it's both a dogma and a doctrine of the faith. And to understand purgatory, you have to understand the reality of sin and the reality of what sin causes in a person's life and how the remnants of sin can remain even after the person has truly sincerely repented of the sin through sincere contriteness of heart and with a firm purpose of amendment. So the man who confesses his alcoholism which during a bout with alcoholism had him verbally, very severely and verbally, maybe even physically abuse his spouse and or one of his children. He confesses that sin and has such great contrite, uh, contrition, sincere contrition for it, has a firm purpose of amendment not to fall into that again. And he's, he's absolved of those sins, but when he exits the confessional, there's still that healing that has to be done with the spouse and the children, right? So confession absolves us of the guilt of the sin, but, but what we call temporal punishment remains. And so the doctrine of purgatory is about A, the reality of sin, B, the reality of temporal punishment that remains even after the sin is confessed through sincere contrition and firm purpose of amendment. Why? Because there's personal, social, ecclesial, and cosmic consequences to sin, because the human person is at the apex of creation. We're the only creature made in God's image and likeness. We're the only creature that God has willed for its own sake, as the Catechism teaches very clearly, and Scripture tells us as well in the book of Genesis. So 
understanding these components, if a person dies still attached to their sin, there's purgatory to be to be atoned for. There's atonement for temporal punishment to be atoned for in purgatory. We need to atone for that attachment that we still possess to sin at the time of our death. But then again, if at the time of your earthly death you have already atoned for that temporal punishment, then there's no need to go to purgatory, and one enters heaven immediately. And this is why I stress to my listeners so often in my talk, especially on the four last things, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And and I would encourage you to get that book for your friend, because it's titled The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. God's plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. Okay? There's no doubt about that. His plan B for us, if you want to call it that, is to go to purgatory. Why do I say that? Because at least the holy souls in purgatory are assured heaven once their temporal punishment is completed. Okay? But we don't want to go there, right? I pray for the grace daily in my morning offering to be able to accept any and all forms of, of suffering, tribulation, etc., that I can atone for as my temporal punishment now while still living, atone for my already forgiven venial and mortal sin, as God sees them, that I've already confessed, atoning for that now, so that when I die, I merit the greatest of all graces of entering heaven immediately upon my death. There's, that's how God wants us to pray. God wants us to go to heaven immediately. So, you know, for, for your, the purposes of your friend, I would recommend that, that he understand purgatory. And to understand purgatory, there's a great section of it in, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, okay? It's number 1030 through 1032, three, three numbered paragraphs, 1030, 1031, and 1032. However, hell comes right after that, the fact that God predestines no one to hell. To go there is by one's own doing with purposeful, non-repentant, mortal sin on their soul. The section on hell comes right after that, numbers 1033 through 1037. And it's after the section on hell that we have the section on judgment. After the section on judgment is on the reality of temporal punishment. So, so these are areas that are all intimately tied. You can't just read on purgatory and leave it there. You've got to understand the entire doctrine. Our baptism and our confirmation calls us to be good students of the faith, okay? Uh, good students of the faith, and that's so important. So just, you know, maybe you could do a study with your friend on those sections of the catechism. Uh, number 1469 is the one that mentions the four categorical consequences of sin, the personal, the social, the ecclesial, and cosmic, and why temporal punishment remains after we've confessed the sin, whether mortal or venial, because sin is messy. Even though the man confesses the alcoholism and the, and the psychological verbal bout against his spouse and child while he was in one of his drunken stupors, fine, he's absolved of that because he had sincere contrition and a firm purpose of amendment in the sacrament, but there's still healing to be done with the spouse and the children. The words of absolution do not function as a magic wand. You exit the confessional and everything's hunky-dory. That's not how it works. What confession does do is put you back in a state of sanctifying grace and that tells you that you have the seven gifts and the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit at least operative in you now and alive. They may be infantile in you, so you got to work them like a muscle to make them grow in you. But for example, fortitude, courage, you'll have the courage now through, through sincerely praying about this, of course, to now enroll in AA because up until this point, you never enrolled in AA. Okay, so that's what confession does. It gives us the, the, the courage to 
face our issues head on. Good self-knowledge, right? So great question. I would recommend a, a study with your friend uh, and maybe some other fellow parishioners at your parish on that section of the catechism, the, the section on heaven, hell, purgatory, and temporal punishment. Or just go through my book. You know, I promote that book during Advent. It's a quick read. It's only 100 pages, five short chapters. Jack, you know this, five short chapters. Your mm-hmm. lovely wife is one of the endorsers of the book. The five chapters are, are death, judgment, heaven, hell, and the necessity of the spiritual life. And it's in that fifth chapter, the necessity of the spiritual life, that I mentioned the 14 steps to help foster one spiritual life that I mentioned just a few moments ago before the break. You know, monthly confession, weekly Eucharist, Lexio Divina. I talked about it a few minutes ago in regards to Lexio Divina. You know, so a visit to the Blessed Sacrament outside of Mass each week, little things that we can do. You're not going to be doing all these at once, you know, all in a matter of a week, but, but baby steps over time. There's a great quote by St. Philip Neri, the founder of the Oratorians. He says, one should not wish to become a saint in four days. No, but little by little, step by step, grace by grace. So Fred, I would encourage you to give a witness by pointing out that section of the catechism and reading it with your friend, especially with the commentary. Okay. Thank you so much for a great question from Boston. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Congratulations to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family, Iowa Catholic Radio, celebrating 16 years as an EWTN affiliate. It doesn't seem possible. They serve Iowa with 5 a.m. FM signals. Congratulations to Matt Wilkham and his whole team, Brian Bell, um, Deacon Tony, John Leonetti, uh, Jimmy Olson, Deacon Mark, uh, and my favorite, Iowa Catholic Radio employee, Amy Harriman, my former neighbor. Um, so congratulations to all the good folks at Iowa Catholic Radio from your friends here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Next up is Kathy in Detroit, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Kathy, you are on with Father Wade. Hi, Father. My question today is, um, was Christ's birth to the Blessed Mother painless because she was born without original sin? I've I've been watching the chosen and it shows the birth where she's sweaty the baby baby Jesus is is all bloody was that um I mean I know the chosen is just uh not yeah. not biblical to a point but I was I was debating you know what how was the birth for of Jesus was it great, messy great like question. a Great question. Well, first of all, the, the chosen, I think it's it's fairly well done, uh, and it is biblical. It's very biblical. That's its foundational basis. But it's not Catholic. It's not it's not based on the teachings of the Catholic Church. And so you're going to see the birth of Christ depicted in the chosen with Mary having the pangs of labor. The stronger tradition and teaching of the Church is that Mary did not suffer the pangs of labor precisely because she was conceived herself without original sin in her mother's womb, so she was kept free from that. Now, Mary still needed to be saved. Mary's fully human. Mary doesn't have an ounce of divinity in her. A lot of Protestants think that we think Mary's somehow divine when we talk about her conception. Mary was fully human. She needed to be saved. 
But Mary was saved by the cross, the merits of the cross, before the cross took place historically. We're saved after the cross took place historically. We're still saved by the cross as well, but after it took place historically. Mary was saved by the merits of her son from the cross before the cross took place historically. Okay, that, that's the importance there. So the, the teaching tradition of the church is that she did not suffer the pangs of labor. Now, you mentioned... It, it, the, the chosen, I haven't seen that particular episode, that, that scene of the birth of Christ, but you describe it as it showed Christ bloody and, and Mary sweaty. Now remember, natural, natural elements of the human physiology would not be affected by that. So the placenta, etc., cetera, uh, would be all present, and the amniotic fluid would be present, et cetera, et cetera, and the breaking and all that, but she didn't have the pangs of labor. That's as far as the church goes on that, is that Mary did not suffer the pangs of labor. And many of the church fathers from the earliest centuries teach this. In fact, it's the foundation, ultimately, first of all, from Scripture, based on the Immaculate Conception teaching from Scripture, that she was full of grace, uh, that, that she would not have the pangs of labor. Many of the church fathers are already quoting this early, early on, and so this is the foundation of the church's teaching. So great question, but don't confuse the absence of the pangs of labor, meaning automatically that there's not going to be any residual blood from the birth or anything like that. Those things are going to be natural and can happen without the pangs of labor because it's part of the natural physiological makeup of the human person at the time of birth and of their mother at the time of birth. So as, as far as the church's teaching goes, she goes only so far as to say that Mary did not suffer the pangs of labor. Great question. Thank you so much. And, and, and uh, why, does that help you out, first of all? Yes, thank you. Great. You're welcome. And, you know, first of all, Mary's role in salvation history as the mother of God, the Theotokos, you know, it's foretold in the Old Testament. We look to Isaiah 7.14, and for those of you listening, for the essence of time, I'm just going to give the scriptural passages, but you can go back and look these up when you listen to the podcast afterwards. But in regards to the, the Theotokos, the mother of God, her role in the divine maternity, which we celebrate on January 1st every year, the octave day of Christmas, Mary, the Mary, mother of God, which used to be celebrated on October 11th, my own mother's birthday, okay? My mother's deceased now, but her birthday was October 11th. It was the Feast of the Divine Maternity. Well, guess when John the 23rd, Pope John the 23rd, now saint, began the Second Vatican Council? It opened up on October 11th, 1962. He wanted the Marian dimension, Mary, mother of the church. He wanted that Marian dimension at the onset of the Second Vatican Council. Well, in the reform of the, of the liturgical calendar, because you have so many saints and only 365 days a year and so many titles of the Blessed Mother, et cetera, et cetera, and the church is big on octaves, that with the reform of the post-Vatican II liturgical calendar, the divine maternity was transferred to January 1st, and it's now called Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God wherein we do celebrate her divine maternity, not meaning she's divine, but meaning that she carried God in her womb, specifically the second person of the Trinity made incarnate. You know, semper distingue, always distinguish in Latin, right? Semper distingue, always distinguish. We got to be very precise when we're, when we're giving the truth, giving the faith, teaching others how to know their faith, love their faith, defend their faith, and share their faith. So 
It's important to know that Vatican II opened with the Marian dimension, right? But in regards to her being foretold in the, in the Old Testament, we have Isaiah 7.14, Micah 5, verses 2 through 3, conceived without original sin, of course, the great passage from Genesis 3.15, uh, and Luke 1.28. Uh, the fact that she was uh, a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and Luke 1, 27 and 34. Uh, typified in, in, in Ezekiel's book, the, the, pro, the book of the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 44, uh, verse 2, Luke chapter 1, verse 34, that she's mother of God and foretold in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 6, Matthew 1, 23, Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and also Galatians 4.4, 4. and also from Luke 1, uh, verses 35, 43, and chapter 2, verse 11. So those are just some, some passages. The fact that she's highly blessed, uh, that she was to suffer many sorrows, Lamentations 1.12, Luke 2.34-35, that she meditated on Jesus' words and pondered them in her heart. She pondered the life events of Jesus in her heart, for example, the finding in the temple, uh, the fact that she requested Jesus' first miracle, John 2, verses 1 through 12, the wedding feast at Cana, uh, and given to us as our mother from the cross by Jesus uh, to the Apostle John. John is representative of all of humanity, the, the disciple whom he loved, because Jesus loved all of humanity. So in the person of John at the foot of the cross, the Apostle John, we see all of humanity, and, and behold your mother, son, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. So it's meant to be given, she's meant to be given to all of us. Uh, the fact that she devoted herself to prayer, uh, Acts 1.14. So it goes on and on and on and on. And Mary has a prominent role in our salvation history. She's not our redeemer, she's not our mediator, she's not a god, she's not a goddess, but she has a prominent, prominent, my gosh, prominent role in our salvation and its reality and, and our salvation history. And God has deigned that she have a prominent role in it, as a mother does to humanity. A mother has a prominent role to humanity. This is why abortion is so evil. Uh, one argument for why it's so evil. Uh, so it makes sense that, that we have these events of Mary in Scripture, these foretelling of her role in salvation history in the Old Testament, uh, her role at the wedding feast of Cana with Christ's very, very first public miracle, etc. You know, it's interesting. It's asked, you know, well, why was Mary so concerned that they had ran out of wine, right? Everybody has a right to ask that question. She turns to her son and she says, they have no more wine. Jesus turns back to her and says, woman, why is this such a concern of yours that it should also be such a concern of mine? Can you imagine answering your mother that way? <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. So what's she do in response to that? She does what any good mother would do. She totally ignores him. <laughs> and instead, she turns to the, to the wine stewards and she says, hey, do whatever he tells you. And those words have rung true down to the modern day of our blessed mother having one goal and one goal only, to lead us to her son. Do whatever he tells you. But going back to why she was even concerned about the fact that they had ran out of wine, many of the church fathers addressed this fact. She wanted to protect the young bride and groom from embarrassment of having ran out of wine. How beautiful is that? What a mom. What a mom. She wanted to protect the young bride and groom from embarrassment of having ran out of wine. And that's pretty awesome. Great question. Thank you so much. 
Be sure to check out Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. She'll be talking to Don Johnson, the filmmaker and director of Disconnected, a documentary on the transgenderism craze and its adverse effects. And she'll also visit with our very own Joan Lewis with all of the Vatican Insider News. That's Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ricky is next. He's in Bellevue, Nebraska, listening at EWTN.com. Ricky, you are on with Father Wade. Hey, thank you, guys. I uh, appreciate, uh, appreciate you taking my call. My question is kind of two-part, if that's allowed. Um, number one, uh, I've been studying a lot of church history. I- I'm non-Catholic, by the way, but I'm investigating, um, and I'm looking into... Uh, the early Church, and just studying a lot of what they believed. And my views have definitely changed on the Eucharist uh, in regards to symbol um, and believing in real presence. I think that real Mm -hmm. presence is pretty much the only way to go. I'm still fleshing out, you know, issues of transubstantiation and everything like that, but real presence nonetheless. Um, So my first question would be, or first part of my question is, where do we get this notion in, in history that it has to be a priest uh, that consecrates the bread and the wine. And uh, second part of my question, if I'm allowed to ask it, is uh, does, does it follow then if a priest does not consecrate the bread and the wine that when I partake of the Lord's Supper at, at my non-Catholic Church, if I receive it by faith, is it therefore still not efficacious for my soul because it's not consecrated by a priest? Okay, great question. Well, first of all, why, why does it take a priest? Well, the chief act of corporate worship for a priest is the offering of sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. So, for example, for the Old Testament priests, uh, this was the slain animal offerings, right? Thank goodness for the New Testament dispensation, right? Uh, I can't imagine being at St. Nicholas and William this past weekend preaching at all the Masses, and just before Mass begins, uh, the dairymen and cattlemen show up with their, with their calves, and we slaughter them all in the vestibule, okay? So thank goodness Jesus came to establish the new covenant, the new covenant dispensation of his offering to the Father of himself, uh, his body and blood, soul and divinity from the cross, which the Mass makes present again that one singular act. So some of our Protestant brothers and sisters will ask, why do you Catholics keep crucifying Christ over and over and over and over again? We do not. We don't believe that. That's not our doctrine. We believe that Holy Mass makes present again the one and only sacrifice of Christ to his Father. So again, the chief act of corporate worship for the priests is the offering of the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people for the Old Testament priests, uh, this was the slain animal offerings for the New Testament priests. It is the offering of the living God to his Father as he presents himself to his Father in his heavenly intercession on our behalf as our high priest. And the sacrament of holy orders configures the man to Christ. The, the Latin phrase, uh, Ricky, is, is in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. Uh, and in, as a teacher, in persona Christi capitis, in the person of Christ the head, the head of the mystical body of Christ the church, okay? So 
We believe that God has always desired mediation. We see this with all the the major prophets of the Old Testament as well as the minor prophets of the Old Testament. God desires mediation. Well, in the New Covenant dispensation, where animals are no longer required, he still requires that mediation through the church he established as the vehicle of salvation and the seven sacraments that she is the caretaker of, one of them which is the sacrament of holy orders. It's one of the two sacraments of mission and vocation, along with matrimony. There's three sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, two sacraments of vocation and mission, holy orders and matrimony, and two sacraments of healing, anointing of the sick and confession. Okay? Seven sacraments, three categories. We believe that God's mediation in the new covenant dispensation is carried out through the configured man, male, okay, to Christ himself, who took on a human nature that was male. The only begotten Son of God became incarnate. Okay, so this is our basis for an all-male priesthood, okay? And so the, the priest acts and offers in the person of Christ, in persona capitis, in, in, the, in persona Christi, in persona Christi capitis, in the person of Christ and in the person of Christ the head, the sacrifice of bread and wine to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And Ricky, if you pay attention to the collect prayer at the beginning of Mass, a Catholic Mass, right after the penitential rite, when the priest says, let us pray, and he prays the collect prayer. It's called the collect prayer because he just collected all the intentions that have been brought to that Mass by the people sitting in the pews to unite with his primary intention for that particular Mass as the celebrant. Um, that collect prayer is always directed to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, to, through, and in the three divine persons in that order. Okay, ad patrem, to the Father in the Latin, per filius, through the Son, in Spiritus Sanctus, uh, Spiritus Sanctus, in the Holy Spirit, to, through, and in, to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And that formula alone shows the mediation taking place of the priest to Almighty God, because the priest is acting in persona Christi. Now, as far as the efficaciousness of your Protestant communion service, I'm sure with, you're only bound to believe what your Protestant faith teaches. God's not going to require anything more of you at that particular point in your life. He desires you to have the fullness of truth, and our Protestant brothers and sisters have elements of the truth, but they do not have the fullness of truth. That's a Vatican II teaching echoing the Council of Trent from the 16th century. That's why I'm, I'm so excited you're looking more and more at the faith, and, and you're doing it well by studying the faith. You're not doing it based on emotion alone, Ricky, and that's an excellent, excellent reality on your part. You're not looking at the faith or joining the Catholic faith purely on emotion. You're doing your studies. You're researching the Church Fathers. You're looking at the major dogmas like the Eucharist and the Blessed Mother and whatever else, the big stumbling blocks. And uh, so where you're at right now with your Protestant faith, you know, your communion service of, of bread and wine, which remains bread and wine because the Protestant pastors do not have the validity of holy orders. They're not configured priests. They're pastors, that, that, yes, but they're not priests. Um, so they can't consecrate. In order to consecrate the Eucharist, you need valid matter and form by a validly ordained minister that has the apostolic succession and lineage. So uh, they don't have that, but your communion can still be efficacious, no doubt. Does that help you out? Sorry, we were, you asked the question at a few minutes left, but does that help you out what I answered? 
It does. I does. I appreciate it. Thank you much. Thank you. All right. Very, Thanks, very good. Ricky. Thank we you. We appreciate it. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners this day and always, and remain with you always, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow. Until then, God bless.